Hi, I'm Burke, and due to the nature of this episode, there might be depictions of graphic violence and harsh language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, so in today's episode, we're actually going to talk about building your entry-level antagonist. The bright side is, most long-term campaigns, you're actually going to see a lot of different kind of antagonists throughout your game, and depending on what kind of trouble your players get into, there could either be more or less of them. And then the bright side in most long-term campaigns, this character doesn't need to actually be attached to the main villain of your campaign, because a lot of the time, you don't know who that is at the start of your campaign. Now, don't get me wrong, there are people out there who set aside this main villain for a part of their plot, and I know there's a large portion of people who do that. And in that case, don't be afraid to attach this person to your main villain for the campaign, but you don't necessarily have to. See, the party's going to make trouble no matter what they do. That's just how tabletop role-playing games work. See, parties have this way of stepping on people's toes more often than not. So don't be afraid to introduce an antagonist that has nothing to do with your main villain. So in today's episode, I'm actually going to build a couple of these. And we're going to talk about how you can implement them into your game. And in typical world-building with Burke fashion, we're going to build these on the spot. And for this first one, we're going to start with the serial killer. Let's set this up. The party has been coming in and out of this town for the last month or two. They've kind of taken over this tavern that they've been living out of, and they've been doing jobs out of this town and coming back to this town. You know what? Scratch that. Let's make this a capital city. And one time when they're on their way back to the tavern that they've been using as their home base, they notice there's a naked dead person in one of the alleyways. They quickly call one of the guards over and show them the corpse or what's left of it. It's been brutally eviscerated and parts of organs are missing. Before the guards are able to get the party away from the body, one of the party members is able to do an investigation check. They're able to see that it is a human male, roughly six feet tall, and looks like he's a bit of a bodybuilder. The party member is also able to see that the ears, tongue, genitalia have also been removed, and apparently the liver and heart also have been removed. The party is moved away by the guards, but they're not done investigating. The party decides to split up. They send both the ranger and the rogue to go investigate, look for tracks, or look for the person's belongings. The bard's able to talk his way in to do a sketch of the man's face so they can try to figure out who the person is. While sketching the face, the bard notices a tattoo on the man's right arm. However, they don't roll high enough to know what the tattoo actually means, so they draw it down on the parchment as well. The cleric and the barbarian are tasked with just asking the locals if they had heard anything or even seen anything. It's very strange seeing a naked man running around the street, and they all come up with nothing. They return to the tavern and go to the bar. And as they're discussing how strange this all is, the bartender puts his two cents in. He notices that the tattoo that's drawn on there is a sailor's mark. Now, he doesn't recognize the person. It's a big city after all, but he makes the suggestion that you should go down to the wharf and ask some questions down there. The party decides to wait till morning. The next day, they head down to the wharf. And when they get there, they start asking around. They ask around for hours, and finally, through a high investigation check, they actually find that the tattoo matches the matches a figurehead that's on one of the ships. The party heads over to the ship, and they notice there's an 
crazy amount of seagulls and other carrion-eating birds that are on the deck of the ship. And there isn't a ramp that's letting people get in on and off of this ship. The rogue using their grappling hook is able to climb up aboard the ship. And that's when they see the carnage. Mutilated bodies that look like they were torn apart by animals. There's even large claw marks and the door going down below into the ship has been torn off. Through a thorough search of the ship, they found out this ship was docked three days ago through one of the manifests, but everybody aboard this ship is dead. The rogue finds it strange that the coin from the shipment that they have delivered is still intact. It doesn't even look like anything was stolen from the ship to begin with. The rogue decides that they're going to talk to one of the seedier taverns in the area and suggests that the others stay out of it, for the time being at least. They'll meet up with him in about an hour. The rogue finds out that there was a crazy party in the area about two days ago and found out there was some kind of ruckus or confrontation down in the docks. But everyone was having such of a good time, nobody noticed what was actually happening. The rogue relays this to the party. They decide to take their evidence that they've accumulated down to the guards. As they enter the guard post, they hear the clipped conversation of them talking about another murder. The bard is able to convince them to pull them into the conversation, and they also supply them with what they found. The guards were able to identify the newest victim. She was one of the main blacksmiths of the area. The cleric asked to see the body, and it's the same things removed. She was found naked in an alleyway. No blood other than what was seeped on the ground. The cleric deduced that the corpses are being moved to the locations that they're being found. Another guard barges in. We found another one. This one has clearly been dead for a couple days. Two, in fact. The cleric's able to figure out with a medicine check. The guards send them on their way. There's nothing that you can do for us right now. Just keep your eyes open. And weeks go by without a peep. No strange murders. The guards seem to think that the murderer must have moved on, and they haven't seen any evidence of them being around since the three murders. One morning when the party's heading out of town, one of the guards stops them and says that they are back at it again. They're taken to the body, and it is a powerful-looking elf. The bard says, looks like they have a body type that they look for. The group makes it back to their tavern for the night, and there's a celebration going on. The barbarian and the bard decide that they're going to partake. The rest of the group decides they're going to go upstairs. The barbarian wins a drinking competition, and the bard wins one of his own as well. That ring of cure poison seems to be making him some money tonight. The barbarian takes his winnings and begins to head upstairs. He's not feeling well. The bard's too busy to pay attention. The barbarian gets to his room and takes a big pole from his water skin and opens up the curtains to open the window to get some air. A little stuffy in the room. When they get a glimpse of the full moon, the barbarian's bones and limbs begin to snap and change. Sinew, bone, claws, hair, teeth. Primal instincts take over. It's too loud downstairs. Somebody's banging on the door at that delicious scent on the wind. What is that, blood? The newly formed lycanthrope bursts through the window and runs down the street, searching for that scent. It's late. The streets are mostly empty. There's a group behind him, chasing. He pays no mind. He's clearly faster than them. The smell is intoxicating. The lycanthrope sees a goat, chained up in the middle of the road, the stake going into the ground. The goat is dripping blood. The lycanthrope goes faster to get its meal. The young werewolf doesn't see the razor wire and runs right into it, tripping and slicing. The lycanthrope falls on its face, angry now. The lycanthrope rages and sniffs the air. It has found the prey. It quickly climbs up the side of the building. The werewolf and the hunter engage in combat. The hunter is clearly specialized in hunting werewolves. 
The party finally catches up and is able to step in and help their werewolf companion, and they take out the hunter. They remove her mask, and she is the serving girl that started at the tavern the other day. Well, that was a fun bit of building. Hope you enjoyed that part. See, serial killers usually have their own motives and they have a thing that they kind of like. Listen, I've listened to a ton of true crime podcasts, so if you really want to get down that rabbit hole and you want to build the serial killer for your game, I suggest you listen to some of these true crime podcasts. For this one, I built that they were looking for a certain body type. They were looking for the strongest, most alpha people that they could find. This serving girl actually poisoned the barbarian in his alcohol, slipping him lycanthrope saliva. And over the course of the night, the barbarian had consumed enough of it where he failed the con save. Now, before I move on, you can stat this thing however you like. The interesting thing is even high tier antagonists don't necessarily have to be a powerful thing. In this case, it's a hunter. So it made more of a combat character. You can make a more mystery focused character that really isn't that dangerous when the party actually gets their hands on them. And this goes for high antagonists too. If the king is evil, what's the chances that the king actually has any sort of power? Character power, I mean. They're going to have people with character power. It's the demon lord that's puppeting the king, and it has all the character power. And that's your combat character. Now, don't get me wrong. It's okay to build combat antagonists. It is. And it's also okay to build non-combat antagonists. At the end of the day, we're crafting stories. And whether that character is the one that they fight or the one they have imprisoned, either way, you're telling a story. All right, I have time to record one more example for the night. Yeah, I actually got to record this on the night I wanted to. This one is also going to be built on the fly. The party has been following this wake of destruction for the last three weeks. It's clearly goblins, and they're not hiding it. And the way they're leaving their grotesque trophies behind is infuriating the party. They know they're getting close because the Wake of Destruction's bodies are more fresh than they had been in the past. They know the goblins are traveling underground because of their light sensitivity and they are attacking at night. Their only chance to save the next town is to get there before the night falls. They arrive at the next town at noon and they're quickly able to convince the populace that they need to get the hell out of the city. Problem is a portion of the military in this town want to stay and fight and no matter what the party tries, they're determined to stay. The party decides that they're going to stay and fight as well. They urge the non-combatants to leave and send them to the next town to warn them just in case things go sideways. At the beginning of dusk, the goblins send in their war dogs, hundreds of them, trained to eat human flesh and not to stop until they're dead. And once the sun sets, the goblin infantry move in, supported by cavalry riding war dogs themselves, not to mention the goblin archers. They even have hundreds of bugbears supporting their ranks. And after a portion of their forces are taken out, the goblin shamans come out and give support. The party and the forces are able to hold out till dawn when the goblins retreat. That's when they notice the hobgoblin that's running them, dressed in shamanistic garb and tattoos on pretty much all of its body. This one is clearly different than the others. The party waits to get their rest during the day. When night falls, there's no attacking. They're surprised. The goblins have never done this before. That's when they notice the smoke from the city that they sent the non-combatants to. And I'll leave it at that. Not all entry-level antagonists need to actually die right away. At least not the first time you see them. A character like this one, who's clearly a leader class, it's okay for them to plan and plot and maneuver to make sure that they get the most out of what they are after. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. This is kind of a fun little exercise to discuss how to build these entry-level antagonists and kind of give you an idea story-wise how to put them in your game. 
Now, I didn't build them out stat-wise because, yeah, I'm kind of doing this on the fly, and maybe one day we'll talk about statting an antagonist out. But if you enjoyed this episode, you can let me know on Twitter at Burkhart Gaming. And just a reminder, we have a Discord. You can find it and all their other socials in the show description below. The next episode of the Telor campaign is airing the 25th, so this coming Saturday, where I play Raymond the Changeling Bard. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show, if you could tell a friend about it, that'd be awesome. And thank you for making it to the end of the episode, and I'll catch you on the next one. Ooh, thanks for the port, Burke. That was a fun episode to record. All right, why are we back on Eberron? Because that's where Axehammer's living right now. Wait, we're here for Axehammer? What, you want to reconnect with your dad? It is Father's Day, after all. Ugh, don't remind me. Oh, Varus is actually very bad. He's a very evil man. Yeah, don't remind me. Where are you going to find him? Oh, I know where to find him. I'll meet you back here, and we'll do a character builder episode this week with him. And then he can help me bring Artemis in. You're going to try to bring Artemis in right away? Mm, that's probably not a good idea, right? We get Daph Cole's help, too. You know, Daph Cole was cool and all, but I don't know if he's specialized enough to bring in that kind of guy. Well, Daph Cole is specialized in hunting humanoids. Ugh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, he comes from a world that had cannibalistic halflings. What do you think he was hunting? It was people. Anyways, I got a long journey ahead of me. I'll catch you on the next one.